Barnyard Language. We are Katie and Arlene, an Iowa sheep farmer and an Ontario dairy farmer with six kids, two husbands, and a whole lot of chaos between us. So kick off your boots, reheat your coffee, and join us for some Barnyard Language, honest talk about running farms and raising families. In case your kids haven't already learned all the swears from being in the barn, it might be a good idea to put on some headphones or turn down the volume. While many of our guests are professionals, they aren't your professionals. If you need personalized advice, consult your people. Welcome to another episode of Barnyard Language. It is fall. The leaves are falling. I have a giant maple-filled driveway. And uh, Katie, do you have the same in Iowa? Is it autumny? It is autumny. Um, it's been quite windy, so we don't really have a lot of leaves in any one place. Uh, is uh, Levi still living his best life? out there in your leaf pile. We watched that a number of times. Yes, yes. The dog does enjoy playing in the leaves. Today is not his best life day. We did finally get his shots done. It was our third attempt. So this is a Jack Russell who is, I'll say 85% a good boy and 15% a little jerk. And especially when He's vets. Jack Russell, Arlene. Yes. It is on brand, yes. And so, uh, especially when vets come around and want to, to do things like prick him with needles, he is not a fan. So, this was our, our third attempt. And this one, they doubled the dosage of meds that they were trying to give us to uh, kind of sedate him. And we were wearing gloves, and I threw a like heavy coat over his head this time, and we took three of us, but we got him pinned down and gave him all the shots that we could. So he should be good for a little while, but he was mad. Well, and it seems like it's always the small dogs and then it's more frustrating because it's like, he weighs, what, 10 kilos maybe? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's under, uh, just under 20 pounds. close enough to him to pick him up. So. No, no, you wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> You're not even allowed well, to pet him. When I visited Arlene, for our listeners, I accidentally petted him. You know, I was throwing the ball for him, and he brought the ball back, and I just reached down and petted him. And I don't think, I think we both realized about the same time that I was petting a dog who didn't want to be petted, and that I was not the human he thought I was yeah. when I started petting him. And it was a very quick distancing. Yes, he's he's he and he's do, but letting he's very deceiving. Yeah, he's quite deceiving because he'll come up with you full tail wagging, happy face, but yeah, just throw his ball. Don't try and touch him. But it's, it always feels a little more ridiculous when the dog that's taking three, four grown adults to sit on them weighs 20 pounds. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if it was like a Great Pyrenees or something that was, you know, pushing 180, it would be different. But Yeah. As, he's just got a... a 35-pound Aussie who's got the same sort of personality. I get it. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we drilled winter wheat in yesterday, which was a new thing for us. It's part of a cover crop program. Um, and the boy child, I think I had told folks earlier this summer, he planted um, a few kernels of corn in the middle of the yard. And he has, I think, six stalks and 10 or possibly 11 ears. He's very proud. Wow, his own little crop. And did you cut grass around them all summer? I did. That's very nice of you. Yeah. But he's been, he's been disking it and weeding it and hopefully not fertilizing it too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
in the middle of the lawn. How are things at your place, Arden? Things are going well. Um, so the dog got his shots. That was exciting. And uh, last week, my husband, Hugh, ended up having a just a day procedure at the hospital. He had a, I'm calling it a nose job, but he had a... It was a nose job. Yeah, it was a nose job. <laughs> yeah. So the, the septum on the one side of his nose, like his nasal passage basically was collapsed or bent or I don't know. Anyway, there wasn't much air getting through and he decided that he would like to be able to breathe out of both sides of his nose. So uh, he went in and uh, went to the hospital on Monday. So we were in and out in, in the morning. I think he had to drop, get dropped off at six and then I went, turned around and picked him back up about 12.30, one o'clock. And so he's you know how farmers are. We all know how farmers are. So the, the instructions from the doctor were three weeks. Um, he had kind of scheduled two weeks with less duties. Um, and at a week, which was this morning, he was back in the barn, but not milking. So we'll give him that. So he's not supposed to be lifting anything too heavy or doing anything that would strain his face or um, and he really doesn't want to get hit in the face right now either. So yeah, no milking, but he's doing a few other light chores and he was around for herd health this morning and those types of things and lots of paperwork is getting done. So yeah, that was our uh, week. So we have a high school co-op student with us right now. And so she and I were milking together in the morning. So she survived her first week of having to get up every morning to milk. She did a great job. So three cheers to you, Carly. And, uh, yeah, so she was milking and then going home to shower and going to school for a bit each day. So she did great and we managed pretty well. Not too many calves born, which is always a bonus when uh, there's a few, well, one kind of main <laughs> less person in the barn. But yeah, we got all the things done. So that felt like an accomplishment. And this weekend we went to a haunted house, which is not my favorite thing. I'm a big wimp. I really don't like scary movies or things like that, but it was, it was very well done. It was at our local museum. So it was lots of like volunteers and stuff. And my um, third child, a couple of his friends and their parents were the people doing the scaring. So we went to kind of see what part of the house they were in and get scared. So my kids were much braver than me. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll admit I think we're going to do trunk or treat this year because it's on the Sunday afternoon instead of at seven o'clock on a school night in the middle of the week. And there's bounce houses at trunk or treat, which my kids are pretty stoked about. So that is I pretty fun too. And then you get to go to just one place. Yeah. I have heard of trunk or treats from like parenting forums and stuff, but I don't think that's a thing here. I've never heard of or seen one. Um, Basically, we've you just never, go trick-or-treating on Halloween. Yeah, we've never gone to one, but they're going to have... It's at the county fairgrounds, and there's food trucks and bounce houses and people handing out candy, and it, it sounds much more desirable on my end of things than hauling around in the dark, especially when it's supposed to be cold and quite possibly raining. Yeah, the we've cold got, and rainy Halloweens are not the fun ones, for sure. We've got snow in the... Uh, the 10-day forecast so Boo. I mean it was like the one flake symbol so sure but that that's still a snow yeah 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 um oh and we're done with fall calving and the rams are in with the ewes so 
one thing is finished and one thing is starting. Yeah. So the cycle of farming, right? Today it's put on the storm windows day, so you know it's getting cold out. I, uh, we need more than a single pane protecting us from the outdoors. For the, uh, it reminds me, I was actually going to post a reminder, um, but for those of us who have the permanent storm windows, this is your reminder to close your damn storm windows before you close all the windows for the season and then realize in January why it is so damn cold in <laughs> yeah. random places in your house. Because I'm always the one who forgets to close the storm windows and then there's a storm in like the second week of January, you know, where it'll blow out of the east and I'm like, why is it so cold in here? Yeah. And then I realized that all the, all the windows are still open. The window so, is covered in crystals. Yeah. Yeah. When there's actually snow inside the window. So yes. Yeah. That's your sign. Yeah. All right. Well, let's bring on our guest for this week. We are welcoming to the episode Karen Moore, who is from Eastern Ontario, just like I am. And Karen, we start each of our interviews with the same question. So this is a way to introduce yourself to our listeners. And we always ask, what are you growing? So for our farming guests, that covers crops and livestock, but it can also include families, careers, businesses, social change, awareness, anything. So what are you growing, Karen? Well, I am growing my knowledge of living off-grid in eastern Ontario. It I started from a very small knowledge base, so any movement forward is progress. Um, and um, also growing for amazing young people who are my children, but I can't really call them children anymore because they're all adolescents and young adults. And I would also add growing knowledge and awareness around the needs of children, youth, and adults who experience life from a different place and um, really working hard to kind of change our our idea about what that means for people and trying to change the world, you know, one interaction at a time. Just just little little tasks, that's all. Oh, yeah, yeah, minor <laughs> stuff, really. <laughs> So can I can I ask just because I'm curious what is the what is the motivation or what what brought you to living off grid what was what was that experience like Well I would like to say it was you know because it was the environmental thing to do or because you know it was a dream but the honest truth of it is that we bought 23 acres in rural um, eastern Ontario and had a dream to build a house on it at some point COVID hit and we decided, oh, this is the perfect time to build a house. And when we decided to do that and talk to Hydro about putting in the Hydro lines, it was going to cost us an exorbitant amount of money. And so the decision was off-grid was going to be less um, expensive. And so that was the, the real reason. But now that we're doing it, um, it's kind of exciting, actually. It's kind of cool to, I know it kind of sounds hokey, but it's neat to know that you're creating your own hydro when you plug the kettle in or when you, you know, when anything is being, um, anything uses electricity. It's like we, we created that, like we, we grew that, if you will. And so um, my excitement for it has grown um, from, from actually doing it. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And I'm sure that you think about your usage a lot differently than those of us who just plug it in and there's power there, right? There's, I'm sure there's more of an awareness of, of how much things use and, and what you're using it for. 
more awareness. Also, I know the weather better than anybody else. I can tell you when the the sun is going to be out and how many days of sun. And, um, you know, we really love kind of the April to October time frame because we don't really have to worry too much about what we're creating. The October to March time frame, a little less reliable. And, uh, it, and interestingly enough, it's even increased our communication as a family because we have to negotiate now, right? These ideas of, you know, well, if you want to use the air conditioning, then you can't use the dryer. If you want to use the, you know, the PlayStation, then you have to think about whether or not you're going to use the microwave or, you know, on the really, really cloudy days in the winter when we don't get a lot of um, sun at all, it's like, you know, the dryer is, we don't use the dryer for that many months. We don't use the microwave. And so it, it's created some really cool conversations as a family about compromise and choices and just being really more mindful about who we are in the world um, and, and having to give in sometimes because somebody really needs to do something and it has an impact on somebody else's hydro use. So it's actually been a really cool opportunity. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So you said your kids are older. Can you tell us their ages and how many of you them are still negotiating power usage in your house? <laughs> so um, all of our kids are adopted. And um, so our eldest is almost 28 and we adopted her at three and a half. Our next eldest is almost 20 and we adopted her at nine months. Our next eldest is 18 and a half, and we did a foster with a view or a concurrent placement. So we fostered and then moved to adoption. He came to us when he was um, five weeks. And then our youngest is 17 and a half, and she came to us at two days. Right. Yeah. yeah. So lot, Busy house. <laughs> lots of, uh, yeah, and lots of different ways and arrangements, I'm sure, of how yeah. they they came to you for sure so karen we're talking to you today because of your expertise both professionals um can you tell us in your own words about your background and your work and such sure so i'm a registered social worker and i have a private practice here in eastern ontario working primarily with families who are walking the journey of neurodiversity and and or adoption and permanency so one or the other or both. Um, so I do a lot of work with um, children, youth, and families where the initials of FASD, ASD, ADHD, all of those labels and initials come dancing through the journey. Um, and we have a lot of those initials in our family life as well. So I dance that dance professionally and personally. Um, and um, a lot of work in really thinking about what does neurodiversity mean and the impact of neurodiversity on individual lives as well as family lives and really trying to navigate some of the complexities that um, I would say sometimes often don't need to be there, but they get created um, because we often have a kind of narrow sense of what um, neuronormative is. And if, if we had, if we would actually just expand our sense of neuronormative, a lot of the barriers and a lot of the challenges wouldn't exist. And in fact, I could be unemployed and um, I would love that. I mean, I would 
obviously move on to a different level of employment and do something else. But I would love to not have to be helping people navigate some of the complexities that are kind of put in the way of um, children, youth, and families because of the way that we perceive um, neuronormative reality. I, I think the reality is everything is neuronormative, and we have created these social constructions around what's diverse and what's not and what's acceptable and what's not. And it's those human creations of those labels that actually create the difficulty. Yeah, I'm absorbing all of that. Well, <laughs> thinking. So you, like you, you shared your your four children are all adopted and they yeah. had various journeys themselves. Can yeah. you tell us, without getting too you know too personal into their own experiences, but as a parent, how did you navigate those journeys, both kind of individually and separately? Because I'm sure that they they all impacted each other and you know like the, the family mm -hmm. as a unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'd like to say we navigated them brilliantly every single time. And um, I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> um, well, you're a professional. So I mean, obviously you did. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think that makes it more difficult sometimes, right? Because I think that there's um, an added pressure that I put on myself and that systems put on me that if I'm a professional doing this work that um, I must have it all figured out when it comes to my own journey and my journey with my kids. And that's far from the truth. Um, my kids have been my best teachers, actually. Um, but we've navigated, you know, difficulties with doctors, with schools, with recreation programs, with family expectations, with our own expectations, um, We've, you know, navigated parenting dilemmas and strategies around, you know, do we consequence more? Do we consequence less? Do we, you know, do we take things away to change behavior? Do we, all of those kinds of messages that we got, like everybody else did around, you know, this is how you parent a child who is neurodiverse. You do more of this, you do less of this, you, you know, add this, you subtract this, you... You just need to be more consistent. You just need to be more, you know, open. You just, it, there was always, you just need to be more of, or you just need to do less of, or, and um, so, you know, those, those dilemmas, I mean, they still follow because each child is different, like you said, Arlene, right? And so what worked for one child isn't going to work for the, our next child and isn't going to, and what worked for child one on Monday might not work for child one on Monday afternoon, right? Like it works yeah. Monday morning, but it's, so I think that, um, you know, came to a learning of the fact that what really mattered in all of this, and I speak about this often in the adoption work that I do and um, the work that I do with families and in my own journey as a parent, is that what really matters at the end of the day is the relationship and I'm always now looking at that being my guide to decisions, intervention, strategies. At the end of the day, will this add to my relationship with my child or will this take away? And um, my favorite saying, my partner and I, our favorite saying is five years from now, is this going to matter? Um, a year from now, is this going to matter? And if it is going to matter, then what do we need to do to ensure that this is going to matter well? 
And if it's not going to matter a year from now, why, why are we invested in this? Why, you know, is it, you know, is it peer pressure? Is it pressure from family? Is it pressure from the school? Is it pressure from wherever? Um, and really being able to use that as our touchstone um, around, you know, the relationship with each and every one of our kids is what matters the most. And that's what we're going to use. That relationship is what's going to keep us going in the tough times. And it's also going to be what keeps us going in the, in the easy times or in the good times, right? Um, and so really kind of thinking about, you know, when we're trying to come up with a strategy, when we're trying to come up with a next step, when we're trying to figure out what the hell do we do now, what's the impact going to be on this relationship? And, um, and it, that served us well. It served us well. And it, it has given us the opportunity, I think, sometimes to kind of, sit back a little bit and give some time for reflection. There's very few things that we've learned that need immediate response. Of course, safety issues do. Um, issues around life and death, absolutely. There's an immediate response there needed. Issues related to, you know, the fact that, that one of our kids has done something they weren't supposed to do or they um, haven't done something they were supposed to do that doesn't need an immediate response. That can give us a time to reflect, think about who they are, think about who they are in this interaction, who we are, and what do we want to move forward so that our relationship remains intact and we move forward from a place of connection. So it's an important piece, I think. Yeah. I think that is really important. And I, I agree with what you're saying that sometimes those outside pressures end up creating a sense of urgency that isn't there, right? Where if you have a teacher who think who is only teaching your child this year, they want to see results within, you know, this time period before the next report card, before the test, all that kind of stuff, or, you know, whatever the situation may be. But, but you're right, sometimes our responses are going to be things that take longer or that aren't going to show an impact for a long time. So, mm -hmm. so thinking about things in that more long-term connection type journey is, is really important, whether mm -hmm. our kids are neurodiverse or not. Yep. Yep. So Karen, I just added a question here <laughs> and I, I hate the wording I'm about to use, but I couldn't really come up with anything better. Um, because all four of your kids are adopted, how much warning did you have about the likelihood of them being neurodiverse, especially knowing that they were all young when they came into your family? You know, I mean, it, yeah, I, it seems like adopting older kids, you tend to get more warning. But I think even with older kids, we sometimes minimize the potential. I mean, I think the reality is um, adoption is trauma. Right. Um, and so whether or not a child is adopted at one day old or a year old or five years old, um, the fact that they are going through an adoption journey means that they've experienced a trauma and will continue to experience that trauma for the rest of their lives. It doesn't mean that that trauma always has to be traumatizing. It does, though, mean that the reality is they will always be adopted. And that will have impact in different parts of their, their lives. So I think, um, you know, I think as an adoption community, and it may be different in different, you know, different provinces, different countries, 
as an adoption community, I think we're working hard to be more upfront and honest about the fact that we often don't really know about kids' beginnings, right? There's often huge gaps. And some of that can be um, minimized with people taking, you know, more knowledge and thought about how to document things and keep track of things. But some of those things aren't known, right? Like if, for example, a child comes into care at the age of five or seven or eight, there might be years and years and years of experience that um, we don't know about especially in including prenatal experiences, right? So when we're talking about FASD, which is a particular interest and area of expertise for me, although I use the word expertise in a very light way because I don't consider myself an expert at all. When I say expertise, it's that place of, um, of um, curiosity and passion about um, it, um enlightening the world about the realities of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and um, the way that we can absolutely change trajectories um, if we um, clue in quicker sometimes and if we, you know, um, and if we have some of these honest conversations and look at some of the barriers that make it difficult to be able to have some of these conversations. Um, so, um, I think for our kids, we got as much information as was known, but I think there was much more information that could have been known. And um, there were, um, you know, lots more places where certainly, I mean, we adopted our kids 20 plus years ago, well, 15, 20 years ago. And even the concept of, you know, adoption being trauma or the idea of, you know, um, kids um even you know that idea that that kids have a life before um we often i think in the adoption community used to kind of think once kids were adopted it was almost like they had a new beginning a new start and i i'm so glad to say we're we're much more enlightened about that now and recognize that it's one person one life one journey and that it's about addition, not subtraction, right? It's not about a new beginning when a child moves into adoption. It's a continuation of a journey. Um, and I think we still need to do a lot better in knowing and, and sharing and talking about um, the histories of, the possibilities of, the realities of, um, the impact of, of trauma and adoption on children, youth, and adults. This is still my question, isn't it? I just added a whole bunch of questions in here. Um, so, well, now none of my questions make any sense in the order they're in. <laughs> it sounds like my life. You can, you can adjust. <laughs> well, I feel like I'm going to move one of these questions up and see if that helps things. So, as someone who my own neurodiversity was diagnosed at the age of 40 and realistically it's been a part of who I am forever yep. um but you know it was one of those doesn't perform to expectations right. sort of things um how do we deal with learning such crucial parts of who we are as adults I mean you know especially for women there's been such an explosion in the last few years of people who are 
reaching a place where we're completely redefining what we know to be true about ourselves Mm -hmm. and especially trying to raise children when you're learning so much about yourself at the same time Mm -hmm. is really really strange Mm -hmm. um so I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on that I guess so I think I have a couple of thoughts as I hear you speak I think the first one is I honestly believe that our children know the truth about their identity. They know who they are. And oftentimes adults, systems, et cetera, don't recognize that truth or try to convince them of a different truth. And so I, I think that when adults get diagnosed, you know, as adults with a neurodiversity, um, it's, it's not this thing that comes out of nowhere. It's this recognition of a truth that has always been, but was never honored. And it was always trying to be packaged in a different way, in a way that the adults around could explain it or understand it, sometimes from a limited understanding of what the possibilities could be, right? So especially, like you said, for girls and women, the idea of neurodiversity is often missed, right? And Or we, um, we, we come up with other ways of trying to understand those behaviors and those existences. Um, I think it, it I think that's why I'm so passionate about the fact that I really want us to understand and and really see kids for who they are because we have that identity formation all the way along, right? From the time we're born, we start to create through all of those different child development stages a sense of who our identity is. And if we find out at the age of 15 or the age of 18 or the age of 20 or 30 or 40 or 60 that there's a significant part of our identity that we didn't know or that wasn't acknowledged, we have, we have to kind of do some backtracking, right? We kind of have to go through those identity formation stages again. And if you will get to know ourselves from this new place of truth, um, it's a similar journey when, you know, I'm working with families around the adoption piece and they're saying, you know, we haven't told our kids they're adopted. And they may be, you know, teenagers, young adults at this point. And my first thing to say to them is somewhere in your child's sense of who they are, they know that they're adopted. They, they, they have that in their DNA, right? And so um, I guess my, my, my long-winded answer is I always hope that we can help people understand their truth as soon as possible so that we don't have people trying to re-understand themselves, you know, 20, 30, 40 years into their lives with this new lens. And, and, And I really want to repeat again that I don't think the lens is new to them necessarily. I think it's the, this um, way that, that society or that um, the world has been able to translate them. I think people know their truth and they often get silenced in that truth and say, no, that's not who you know. The reason you're acting like this is because of this. And, and we come up with other explanations other than the truth. Um, and so 
understanding neurodiversity, being able to, you know, um, and, and this comes to one of your other questions, so I'm going to jump to it. And I'm sorry for that, that it, I'm jumping to your question, but that, that idea of labels, right? Um, labels can be misused and they can be things that people use to hurt people. That belongs to the person trying to hurt. A label that helps us understand and honor. I want us to create a world where people feel honor about having a... Um, you know, ASD or FASD. I don't want people to feel and think that because I have FASD, that means there's something wrong with me. I want there to be a world where people say, I have FASD. That's so that you can help understand better how I experience the world. So for me, the difficulty with labels doesn't come with the label and it doesn't come with the fact that that label explains things. It comes with the misinformation, the difficulty, the hatred sometimes of people who are using that label. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if I answered that question. I kind of went on a rampage there. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, it, yeah, <laughs> no, it does it's... because, sorry, go ahead, Kitty. I feel like for some folks, it's really swung in the opposite direction now that we see, you know, autism is a superpower. And I am, for example, for myself, I am very good at my job mm -hmm. in large part because of the way my brain works. But to say it's a superpower is also so, it's just as reductive as saying that the way my brain works is a huge problem mm -hmm. because it does make me very good at some things, mm -hmm. but I don't know that I'm going to call being late either 20 minutes early out of anxiety or late for basically everything ever to really be a superpower, you know, and that it's just as reductive to see it in this toxic positivity kind of way. But at the same time, trying not to cure people of something that is not wrong with them mm -hmm. you know there's nothing wrong with the way my brain works it just doesn't always work in a way that is the easiest to deal with the way that society thinks that it should be working mm -hmm. but it can be a real it's gone so far in the other direction too that it's you know, it's, it's such a superpower and that doesn't seem to be something you hear from anyone who is neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to just be a over acceptance perhaps from mm -hmm. other folks. Yeah, and I think we see that often, right? Where the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. And um, I think you know, when we're talking about spectrums, I think really what we really want to do is honor the whole spectrum, right? And not one extreme to the other. Bad, good, superpower, deficit, all of these extremes, I think are meant to, um, they're meant to divide, right? They're meant to, when in reality, I think it's that piece of we all have brains, all of our brains work differently, 
um, and that we need to kind of challenge the social construction that we've come up with around valuing some brains more than others or some skills more than others and, and really see holistically that um, all brains have values, all people have value and, and um, rather than trying to divide ourselves. So yeah, I think the pendulum does often swing you know, we see that in many, in many cases, and I'm not sure pendulum swings to, to either extreme or helpful. I wonder too, how much of that comes from medicalizing neurodiversity that it's, you know, I mean, if you're diabetic, basically you are diabetic or you're not diabetic. Like mm -hmm. there's not a lot of spectrum in there mm -hmm. or you have cancer, you don't have cancer. That's a pretty like this or that thing where being neurodiverse is a, a huge range of all sorts of things and no two people are neurodiverse in the same way where two people can be diabetic in more or less the same way you know and so I wonder how much of it is just that medicine is not a great approach for the basics of how brains work you know, from a, from a, a healthy brain standpoint. Well, I, I think... And now I'm just totally off. <laughs> totally off. Into... <laughs> oh, well, people know to expect it by now. Um, if this is the first episode you've listened to, apologies. This is basically what it's like. So now I'm going to let Arlene ask her questions so that we can get back on track. <laughs> So we've already been talking about labels and yeah. Katie, I don't think, I don't think you're off base. I get where you're coming from. So yeah. I, I know that I've heard some people say they don't want to label their kids. And I really love what you're saying about people knowing who they are, whether or not they've gotten that news or diagnosis or, or all of the context that they need, they understand themselves, but, but maybe can't always explain it to other people, or it doesn't maybe make sense in, for them to, in society potentially or like you said the way the way the world sometimes works so some people say they don't want to seek diagnosis because then their kid will get labeled mm -hmm. in that negative sense right mm -hmm. and so they might be concerned that 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 seeking diagnosis means that they're actually limiting their child and i was wondering what your thoughts were on the the actual testing diagnosis that kind of stuff or or if you feel like your child has some differences that maybe you don't understand and are starting the process of looking for support like where where do you even start and and what do you feel has has value in that process like how can how can parents seek the support that they need both as parents and for their their kids to to learn how to how to understand themselves better so i think that the concept of labels comes and it you know, kind of comes back to that medicalization piece, right, where we need the label to access the service or most services, although I think services are getting better at not needing labels. Um, and I think that I think that it still comes back to that place of the label itself is not the problem. In my opinion, in my opinion, it is the baggage that comes along with some of those labels and the assumptions and the, the you know, the, the discourse that comes with some of those, those pieces. Um, 
And I think what we really want is for children, youth, and adults, for that matter, to feel a sense of um, pride and a sense of wholeness in who they are. So I think, I, I do think it's individual. I think, you know, different kids have different needs and expectations about that. Some kids, it really helps them to have meaning, if you will, externalized meaning to make sense of their behaviors or their needs or, you know, why, for example, you know, for one of my kids, they could never walk into a birthday party if it had already started. Um, they needed to be there first. They needed to kind of get grounded. They needed to kind of get a sense of the space before, if you will, all hell broke loose, right? And the sensory input and the sounds and the people and the movement and the, um, and, and when we were able to put meaning to that and we put meaning to it from a place of saying, this is just how your brain works, right? Your brain needs to feel a sense of peace and anchoring in a new space before you then have to um, interact with tons of other people. Your brain just likes a chance to, you know, kind of chill for a little bit um, and for you to walk into a room that's already all happening, your brain then doesn't get the chance it needs to settle to then be the best that it can be. So um, being able to provide meaning to that, whether or not we use the label or not, I think it's the meaning making that makes the difference. I think the labels, unfortunately, fortunately, I think there's, there's a debate on both sides. The labels are what help us access the services, right? So they help us access the funding. They help us access, you know, whether it's respite services or speech services or um, without the label, you're not going to easily access some of those funding services or even services in the education system, right? Around like in the Ontario system, that IEP, IPRC process, of being able to be noted with, um, you know, having exceptionalities, which is a word I, I, I have a problem with as well. Um, I think, you know, realistically, and not that I have the power to change the system, but if I did, I would love every student to have an IEP. I would love the IEP process to be a process attached to student wellness and student learning and success for every student not just students who are seen as having exceptionalities. So that's why I continue to do the advocacy work I do so that I can change the system and so that every child can get an IEP. Um, until then, um, you know, having those labels per se, those diagnoses make the journey easier to get some of those, um, those things that make the playing field um, equal, right? So, you know, for, like I said, for one of my kids where sensory issues are really significant, for them to walk into a classroom of 30 kids is huge for them. It takes so much energy and the child beside them whose brain doesn't work like that, they don't have to use any of their brain power to walk into that classroom, right? It doesn't mean that that child's brain is better than this child's brain. It means we have two brains who process environment and information differently. That's all it means. And 
because the environment that we're asking the child to be in is a room full of 30 other people, we need to adapt that environment for that brain to work. If the environment that we constructed is a room with three other people, we wouldn't need to adapt the environment for the brain, that, right? So it all comes down to the fact that it's not about individual people's brains and their neurodiversity per se. It's about the systems and the way we've created environments that adaptations need to be made because of the way that the systems are there. So the labels help access service. They help with the advocacy. They help with a shared language sometimes. Um, there's still room for people, you know, as you said earlier, right? Not one person with neurodiversity presents in the same way. Neurodiversity is neurodiverse, diverse, 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 right? And so a label of ASD or a label of FASD gives you, you know, a sense of a, of a community of realities. It does not tell you who child A is because they have FASD. It gives you a sense of child A may have, you know, a menu of 500 different realities from child B and you as the adult in that system, whether you are the parent, the teacher, the coach, the doctor, um, need to then step up and be able to be curious about what does FASD look like for this particular child right now and know enough about neurodiversity to know that that doesn't mean that that might not be who that child presents and is tomorrow um, based on, you know, the environment, based on how well they slept last night, based on, you know, if they have some trauma triggers about something, right? Like, um, so I think the labels help to cue or should help to cue um, other people that, that there's a need for curiosity from a place of kindness and care, not curiosity from a place of, of um, hatred or, or, um, gawking or like that negative curiosity but a place of curiosity be able to say I need to really I need to work hard to know who you are not because of the label but I need to work hard to know who you are because you're another human being and I should be doing that with everybody the label just helps me to cue that I need to do this a little differently possibly Karen I I love that idea of all children having IEPs or even all people mm -hmm. just having some sort of individual human program mm -hmm. where we would just have this because kids can be a pain in the ass. <laughs> all humans can be a pain in the ass. Yep. That's just the way they are. Yeah. But if it gives somebody a heads up that maybe my kid or myself has a reason for being difficult that isn't just that they're a pain in the ass, mm -hmm. that maybe that clock ticking is legitimately impacting whether my kid can listen to something mm -hmm. or whether I myself can listen to something, mm -hmm. um, you know, and how much that is informed by what we're interacting with. You know, I work in software. Probably mm -hmm. half of my coworkers are neurodiverse right. if we really got down to it. I work remotely. Like my, for me, having 
a diagnosis of every part of how my brain works really doesn't matter because I'm in control of my own life and nobody cares. But for my five-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, where the risk of them being labeled as difficult or non-compliant or doesn't work up to expectations or whatever else can be very different. Um, but I'm wondering, as a neurodiverse adult, how do I know if my kid needs more exploration of how their brain works or if they're just weird? I, does that make sense? Like, my one kid is very focused on their interests and does not like loud noises and does not like flashing lights and all this but how do I know if this is something that needs more understanding and support or if I just say yeah my kid doesn't like loud noises and does it mm-hmm. matter one way or the other mm-hmm. I guess I think um, it's a great question and I think it's a question that parents ask themselves all the time right around do we need to go further with this do we need to get some help with this do we not need to And I think there's no right answer, but I think the place where I land on this often is a place of, are these pieces of them interacting in their ability to lead the best life they can lead? And if they are, then I lean to the point of maybe we need to get some more information here to see if we can minimize the difficulty this is is having on their lives. If it's not, then I'm like, I got no problem here to solve, right? Like, yeah, loud noises really bother them, okay? Um, and, you know, I personally don't like corn. And, you know, I like the, like for me, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying it to minimize the impact of the loud noises. I'm, I'm saying it as a way of saying that we all have things that um, – we don't like that are difficult that are and we need to make some decisions about whether those difficulties impact our life to a point where they're affecting our ability to live our live our best lives um beyond our ability to problem solve it right so i will use my ridiculous example of not liking corn to you know i can i can use my skills to manage that right in a restaurant i don't order corn i don't buy it at the grocery store if i'm at a friend's house and they serve it i eat what else is on the plate i can use my skill set i can use the ability i have to problem solve to minimize that 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 need that, that impact on my life right um if you know, my friend, you know, were to say to me, every time I, I serve you food, you don't eat it. And it's really upsetting me. And, um, you know, I'm taking it personally, and I don't think you're a very good friend. And I don't know how to problem solve that and manage that and have that conversation with her to say, it's not about your cooking, it's that I don't like corn. Um, then maybe I need to be looking at how I can come up with some different strategies or some different ways of doing it because it is impacting my life. That analogy of the corn was really bad, but it, 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 I went with it because I started and I couldn't stop. But it really is, you know, does, does the need outweigh the ability to feel like you're living your best life and you can't use the skills or the resources that you have to mitigate any negative impact that it might have. I think that's a really 
good analogy, honestly, as someone who, and I, I legitimately know that this has come to a shock to a number of people who know my daughter now. Um, when she was about two and a half, I pushed hard for early intervention for speech services because she had five words. Mm-hmm. And she was so frustrated and so angry. And the rest of the family was so frustrated and so angry because she had so much to communicate and no skills to do so. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge problem. And I ran into her speech therapist recently and asked if perhaps there was some sort of uh, money back guarantee because she now literally talks in her sleep, talks all the time, never shuts up. She's but using that level all of, frustration. of those words. Oh, yes. At length <laughs> and repeatedly. I, I don't know how in our family. I mean, nobody else is talkative at all. Um, <laughs> but then looking at our son, who is quite bothered by loud noises, but it has to be really loud before it's a problem. So maybe it's just that he doesn't like loud noises. Mm-hmm. And if it's not really impacting his day-to-day life you know i mean not liking corn is not going to cost you job opportunities probably except like professional corn eating i guess (laughs) you know it's not probably really impacting your social life it's not probably really messing with your head you know it's not it's not a real problem so you know if my kid doesn't like loud noises but it has to be at took him to the circus this weekend and he wasn't super stoked about it because it was very loud and very flashing lights and a lot of people that's not a thing he's going to run into on a daily basis so if it's Mm -hmm. not impacting him on a regular basis then hand the kid a pair of earplugs and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you can mitigate it. it yeah I think I think that you know it can get to a place though where you know the the not liking corn if i have a visceral reaction right when i see corn on the plate and it causes me to have anxiety and it causes me to how am i going to manage this i don't know how to manage this i don't know what i'm going to say they're going to be upset with me you know then corn could be an issue right or i avoid going to certain places because i'm afraid that corn's going to be on the menu or i start to look um you know in an obsessive kind of way at the ingredient list of everything to see if corn is even if it's illogical that corn would be in the ingredient list but so i think it can get to that place right where it could be this this simple kind of piece that then manifests into a difficulty and i guess that's what i'm talking about right is anything can be and anything can't be and i think it 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 you need the context and you need to really be able to balance that with this, the resources that someone has to mitigate the concern and recognize that, you know, today I can manage it. Maybe six months from now, it becomes a bigger issue and I need to move into a different way of, of looking at getting some assessment or getting some intervention. I think even your example, Katie, about... I think... Karen, sorry, I was just going to say your example about speech therapy or, you know, like sometimes kids can... I'm going to talk from the way our house was for a while. A, a child who maybe has some struggles, you can manage well at home. But then once they enter the school system, it gets to the point where they, if they can't self-advocate and 
it's impacting them both socially, it's impacting their teachers and their classmates that depending on their age and stage, there might be resources that you need now that you didn't need six months ago or that you won't need six years from now yeah. or a year from now, but there there could be points along the journey where you do need support because there are going to be things that are unavoidable or that you need them to access those services or do those particular things that it's, you know, beyond your ability to, to mitigate the things that that they can't handle or that they're struggling with. So so that piece of what's what's okay in some contexts when when things change then maybe you do have to to seek support or or look for services or or figure out what the underlying issue is and then see what you can do to help them in those specific times or or mm -hmm. places even mm -hmm. and a lot mm -hmm. of times i hear from families that you know kids will hold it together at school and when they come home, all hell breaks loose. Like they've, they've held it together all day. It's been really hard for them. But when you talk to their teachers or their peer group, it's like, oh no, they're doing just fine. On the outside, they're doing just fine. On the inside, they're working so, so hard to give the illusion that they're doing just fine. That when they get home, home life for the next hour, two hours, four hours, six hours is extremely difficult. And it's hard because the cause of the distress was something that you don't have control over and it's hard for you to mitigate. So you're dealing with the, the outcome of the distress, but not necessarily being able to change the cause of it. So um, oftentimes I'll have families coming looking for support um, and saying, you know, people think I'm crazy because the teachers say, you know, they're doing such a great job. And when they go to grandma's house, they're doing such a great job. And when they go to their friend's house, they're doing such a great job and great job. And, um, you know, and the only people who are seeing the struggles are, you know, parents at home. And, and those pa the parents are coming and saying, are we doing something wrong? Because how are they holding it together in all of these other environments? But then with us, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing behavior, we're, we're having outbursts, we're, you know, and, um, and oftentimes that's the, the explanation of that is that home is the safe place for them to be able to then expel all of the energy they've had to hold in, in those places where they've had to work really, really hard, even though they haven't been doing as well as it looks like they've been doing. I guess the thing I wanted to add to that as someone who is neurodiverse and dealing with that is that the problem doesn't have to make any sense to anyone else for mm -hmm. it to be a legitimate problem. You know, if corn has become a, you know, an, an obsessive issue that is causing you real problems, it doesn't make any difference whether I think it's ridiculous or not it needs to be treated as a as a real thing um, I didn't realize until I was 40 that other people don't experience things as physically painful when they're mm -hmm. bothersome you know that we're not talking about you know oh I don't really like that light that we're talking about you know physical and emotional actual distress and that if something is causing distress it does not matter if it makes any sense to anyone else you know that it it needs to be treated and respected in the same way as 
you would presumably, you know, deal with a, a physical injury to your child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That if it is causing them distress, you would deal with it because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's even, even the person themselves can't put meaning to it. They just know, right? And so sometimes we get caught in this cycle of trying to have them explain tell me what's going on what's it and and they can't put words with all they can say it, ah right like it's just this it's just yuck and I can't tell you why and I can't put meaning to it and I can't make this a cognitive process I can just tell you that viscerally this causes me pain or discomfort or it just feels horrendous and um and oftentimes we're looking for meaning so that we can try and come up with solutions when sometimes what we just need to do is bear witness to it and be there and have empathy and really help to be in relationship at the time to help somebody work it through because it's that discomforting and it's just really hard and that's what they need at the time. And uh, so sometimes the answers aren't there mm -hmm. and we have to be okay with that. So you, I think that's such a, a great point because I think, you know, if somebody breaks a bone, we don't expect them to explain to us what pain is. Mm. And there's things that are universally bothersome and distracting to such a degree. You know, I don't know anyone who wouldn't be distracted by mosquitoes in their ears or a fire alarm randomly going off. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty expected that those things are bothersome mm -hmm. and we don't expect people to to justify being bothered by those things or justify being in physical pain and you know I think we can just understand that we don't have to to understand what is causing a problem you mm -hmm. know we can just deal with the results of it mm -hmm. so I'm wondering about um a lot of our listeners and we are from rural places where sometimes the you know the services don't don't always exist that we might need or we're sometimes more interconnected than than other people we we kind of have to mm -hmm. we have to live in community and i mean we we get to live in community but how can we support other families and other parents adapt and and be supportive but a lot of, especially with people who are still trying to, in our communities who are, who might be struggling because we're talking about a lot of the, the positive aspects and being able to, to figure out what's going on in their families. They can go through times where they're, they are really struggling and feel, maybe feel judged or, or can't access the services that they need and are then feeling really alone. So how can we be more supportive in our communities of people who, who are struggling? Well, I feel like that's a pretty loaded question because there's so many layers there. Because um, you're right, there's not enough service and the service that there is, there's often a wait list and, you know, like there's lots of barriers sometimes to accessing service. I think some of what we can do is we can look to kind of non-traditional places to provide support, right? So I think about, you know, the parent in the grocery store with the child who is having a meltdown about something 
And I think about how much difference we might be able to make as we walk by them if we just say to them something like, I see you and you're doing a good job. And we just keep walking, right? Because I don't know about you, but I've certainly had the experience more times than I want to remember of having to try and manage and mitigate, you know, difficult behavior in front of other people. And one of the first places I go as a parent, as a member of the community is shame, right? Like I'm embarrassed. I don't, you know, and I give myself a lot of negative self-talk of, oh, you know, and I may not be necessarily using all of my skills or all of the, you know, the things I have at to my advantage because I just want it to stop, right? Like, you know, please, can we just stop? Can we just get to the, you know, we, you know, let's get to the car. Yeah. Let's get to the car and then you can do this there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I may have, you know, bribed with chocolate bars, anything to just make it stop. Right. Um, so, and the difference that it could make when you can just see that knowing look from someone that's not judgmental, because that's your worry, right? Is that people are judging and thinking you're, you're sometimes somehow doing something wrong when all kids have temper tantrums, all adults have temper tantrums for that matter. Like, let's be honest here, all human beings do. And so why do we not see that we have such power as community to just give that pat on the back or that you got this mom or, you know, the statement of, you know, um, you know, way to go, dad, you're working hard, or even just a look, right? An eye to eye contact that says you're not alone, right? I think we can do those sorts of things. I think we can think about ways that, you know, we can encourage um, connection in our community, right? So some of the initiatives around, you know, the benches on the schoolyard, so that kids can, if they're feeling alone, they can, sit on the bench and not in a way of feeling excluded, but in a way of normalizing to say, I'm feeling alone and I would like a friend. And it's not a shameful journey. And it's not a journey of, oh, let's feel sorry for that child. It's a journey of, it's okay to express a need and for that need to be acknowledged as a valuable need. And I have, you know, as a kindergarten age kid, I have the power to change that trajectory for that that friend of mine today. They're lonely and I have the ability to play with them, right? So I think being able to do those sorts of things, I think being able to ensure that we have information available in ways that people can access it. I used to work in the violence against women community and we would often leave information taped to the back of the bathroom stall doors so that people can read it in a way that they don't necessarily feel, you know, because there can be, people can feel embarrassed or shameful or, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't have to feel that, but they do because of some of the structures that are still in place. So, you know, especially in rural and small communities, you may not want to ask your neighbor for help because your neighbor is also the person you, you know, you, your life is well in intertwined with each other. Right. And so if you want to have some of that privacy, thinking about ways that we can provide information that's accessible, but private at the same time, um, 
you know, I think also one of the one of the um, groups that I'm a part of is the Rural FASD Network, and it was it's a network that's been started by parents, um, and it came from a place of saying we don't have what we need for our kids and for us, and the agencies aren't doing it. We're gonna do it. And, and it's one of the most amazing um, sources of information and support and empowerment that I know um, as a professional and as a parent. So thinking about how can I make the difference in someone else's life? Maybe, you know, for example, I don't have a child with Down syndrome. What could I do that could make a difference for a family in the community that does have a child with Down syndrome? I don't have to walk the journey to be able to use my individual power in the community to make a difference for others. So having awareness, thinking about opportunities that I can have to make a difference and recognizing that no effort is too small, right? Because if 20 of us do a really small thing, it can make a huge difference. And like I said, even those looks in the grocery store, right? Even those, um, you know, um, you know, at the, at the, at the community meeting, you know, um, if you know that a parent is really struggling going up to them and saying, you know what, you're doing a great job. I just want you to know you're doing a great job. Or I just want you to know, I notice you and I notice you in a really, in a positive way. Um, you know, um, being able to do those little acts of kindness to be able to help people feel like they belong and they belong in a way that um, isn't shameful or isn't something that they need to be worried about, I think can make a huge difference while we're still working hard to advocate for system and social change, right? I mean, we have to do that big piece as well. Um, but those individual interactions relationally can make a huge difference in the journey of a parent who is, is parenting a child who is making, you know, sometimes makes a journey hard. Sometimes it's exhausting. Sometimes you feel like you're all alone and you're doing it all wrong. And, you know, having the person in front of you at Tim Hortons buying you a coffee, they have no idea how much difference they just made in your life. Like you can do simple things like that too. If you have the economic means to do that, or, you know, um, those, those simple things can make a huge difference. Like I said, while we're still trying to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. Because changing the world is little things and the big things, right? Because like you said, on an, on an individual basis, telling somebody that they're doing a good job could stick with them for, for years. And to that one person that did mean the world. Right. So that's really important to remember. Um, I know as our children grow up the ways that, you know, kind of the educational system or, or social systems interact with our kids change, you know, as they get older, I know you have teens and and adults, so you know what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about. So I'm wondering if you have any insight for those of us who are parenting older children who are neurodiverse, both in kind of helping them self-advocate and yet still being involved enough to to support them in those times where they can't really self-advocate or haven't haven't learned those skills quite yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think for me, Once again, it's a recognition, first of all, that we're working in and working with a system that is not what it should be. Um, Because if, if it was the system that it should be, 
then we shouldn't have to advocate. So that's kind of my, my baseline, right? Anytime I have to advocate for something tells me that there's a lacking in the system. And that's not a blame of the system. I mean, the system has been created, you know, for eons and we make changes and we make adaptations, but systems are slow to change, right? And, and systems tend to work better when they kind of look at, you know, kind of the collective, you know, the collective mass of, the majority of people would work well with this, right? So anybody who's on either end of the extremes of that majority, the system doesn't work the best for. So I think we have to acknowledge, first of all, that we're working in an imperfect system. And that's not meaning that there's anything wrong with our child. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with their parenting. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with what we are doing per se. Maybe, maybe you are doing something wrong, but it's not, it's not the, it's not the default, right? We'll just assume um, that not. And yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that sometimes it's not because our kids can't advocate for themselves. It's that they can't advocate for themselves in an imperfect system. And I, and so there are times where we may need to continue to do that role, not because of a lacking in them, but because the system is not set up for them to be able to use those skills in a successful way. And I'm also, I'm always looking at that kind of um, loss gain kind of, you know, um, analysis of how much is this going to cost for us to get this outcome. So yes, maybe they can self-advocate and continue to work and continue to do, but the cost of that is too big compared to what we're going to gain from them doing that piece. And so I'm often having those conversations with um, myself in the mirror and my partner with my kids, like which, which battles are we going to fight here? Right. Um, and I come back to that piece of, is this going to matter a year from now? If it's not going to matter a year from now, why am I making a big deal of it? Are they learning some skills or gaining some things that they can't get any other way? Then it might be worth it. Could they gain these skills or gain this information in other environments that would be less difficult, less challenging, maybe less affecting of their sense of self? maybe then I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to walk this walk. Is this going to affect my relationship with them? And if it's going to affect my relationship with them in a negative way, are there things I can do to make amends for that? Or if not, I really have to ask myself if it's worth it. It always comes back to that relational piece, right? And, and what is, what's the gain here and what's the potential loss? Um, I think that, you know, helping systems, um, helping systems to remember our kids holistically. So, you know, um, I advocate often with systems for, for them to remember not just the things that my child may need help with or is challenged with, but all of the strengths and the wonderful things they bring as well. And when we only have 20 minutes for the IEP meeting or we only have a small, 
oftentimes we can jump really quickly to the, okay, what do we need to figure out? What are the needs here? What are the deficits? What are the, and I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't set a good tone for me. It doesn't set a good tone for us if we're going to be deficit or negative based. Um, So, you know, helping to set tone is often something that I still do. I do a lot of advocacy behind the scenes. I do a lot of scripting with um, my kids around, you know, these are some of the things you might want to ask. I do a lot of kind of... um, even now there's times where I attend um, meetings or I attend appointments online through texting. So I'm not in the room, but I'm there on the text so that if there's a question or, uh, you know, sometimes I'm just sending an emoji, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm keeping that relational connection there to say, you have all of my power. You have all of my connection. You have all of my knowledge with you in the room. Um, and you can access it how and when you need to, and there's no shame in wanting or needing to access it. You're no more successful if you access it or if you don't access it, right? The concept of success is if the outcome is your needs are met in a way that you can be the best person that you can be. And um, so trying to change the, the messaging about what's a successful meeting or successful intervention, independence did not always mean success. Um, I am not always at my best independently trying to do whatever I'm doing. I'm often usually actually at my best and able to maximize my best self in relationship with colleagues who can help together And so this idea of independent advocacy or being able to do it on your own, I think that's a bit of a misnomer, actually. And I think we could probably probably change the music on that a little bit to everybody's benefit. Yeah, those are some great points. I mean, I know even as an adult, yeah, there there are times where you go into an appointment and you want your partner a sibling a friend Mm -hmm. to come with you just Mm -hmm. to have yeah to have another set of years or to to remember to ask that question that maybe you're not thinking of at the time or have a podcast co-host right Katie because (laughs) we're yeah (laughs) we we often work work better when we're uh, using other people's skills as well as our own that's a good Mm -hmm. point I wonder too Mm -hmm. do you feel like there's any benefit in in talking to your older kids about the gaps in the system and saying this isn't just about you like we're we're, we're taught we're, we're facing a system that, that doesn't necessarily work for us. So we're going to have to do these things together. Um, and I will, I will help you. And this is because of the system, not because of the way you are as a, as an individual. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also talk to my kids a lot about the fact that the system doesn't just work for them. It doesn't work for most of the kids. Right. right. And so, yeah. you know, when they, when they're talking about, you know, a colleague of theirs who's struggling, you know, we often have that conversation of, you know, do you think the system's working for them? Um, Because what I want is also to make sure that my kids know that they're not the exception here. Um, That most of the systems that we have are systems that many kids struggle with and they struggle with it for lots of different reasons, right? So kids who have anxiety issues, kids who, you know, are, uh, have uh, gender diversity, kids who are, you know, neurodiverse, kids who, um, you know, like for 
body image needs. Like there's so many um, realities of our humanity that make our systems make it difficult for us to be okay with who we are that I would say the majority of humans in various systems aren't okay with being involved in those systems, right? And so I actually want to normalize that, not just for my kids, but the, the kids and families I have the privilege of working with, that the reality is that most of us are not okay with these systems. They, that you're not the exception because it's not meeting your need. Um, that we have to be changing these systems because they're not meeting many people's needs. And, um, and, and that then creates a community of actually um, being um, a, a community of recognizing that many of us aren't getting our needs met in the various systems that we're, inter we're interacting with. Karen, I was just thinking about how important it is to help our kids start learning to advocate for themselves mm -hmm. when they're little, because, mm -hmm. you know, little kids, little problems. And as much as it can be a pain in the ass, and I might wish that my children would quit telling me what they want, because it would be easier <laughs> to just do what I was going to do, um, there are certainly times that taking into account their preferences for things is a very important way to teach them to advocate for themselves. Yeah. And um, considering that we have the entire legal profession literally to advocate for us when we can't do it ourselves, um, you know, asking for help and asking for guidance can be really important. Um, I'm wondering, as a, as a neurodiverse parent who struggles a lot with things like timeliness and habits and routines and all those things, how do we raise our kids to not learn our habits or to, to, uh, let's, let's just not talk about my kids' chore charts. Okay, let's just not. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's. It's really hard to teach your kids skills that you don't have. Mm -hmm. And as much as people say, well, you know, they'll they'll learn that it's important to just keep working on it, which is absolutely true. There are still things that it would be better for them to just do, even if it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, so how do I make my children be better people than I am, Karen? <laughs> Despite the fact that they are five and six and I'm 42 and still can't keep my shit together. <laughs> Help me out here, please. <laughs> well, I actually think the answer is in the question, which is, I think that, first of all, we want our kids to learn that we all have areas of growth and areas that we struggle with. And we want our kids to learn that it's not about being able to manage everything. It's about being able to recognize the things we can't manage or we don't want to, because there are also things we just don't want to, and look at ways to get that need met in a different way, right? And so I think it's about that, I, that concept that, you know, you said earlier about, you know, wanting kids to learn how to advocate for themselves early. I think we also want kids to learn how to advocate for others, 
right? So when they see an, a child who has a need, they can advocate for their, their peer as well and see that they have something to offer to that person, not just for themselves, but they can have a gift to give to that person. So, you know, when it comes to things that you as a parent may not have strength in, I think we then look to others who do have strength in it, right? And I'm always saying to my kids, not so much now because they're teenagers and they know I know nothing, but when they were younger and they still had the belief that I might actually have some knowledge, um, and they would ask me a question or ask for a skill that I didn't have, I would really clearly say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how to do that. That's not something I'm good at. Let's figure out who does know how to do that. Let's look to somebody who has expertise or knowledge in that or, you know, um, the internet's become a really, I mean, within reason, right? Because you have to be able to gauge the effectiveness of some of those internet resources. But, um, you know, organization's not one of my skills. I'm not neurodiverse as far as I know. Maybe I am, you know, it's possible. Um, I'm certainly not organized though. And, um, and so when I'm looking and I recognize that my lack of organization is not a skill I want to pass on to my children. Um, and so I'm looking to, if there's other people in my family who have organizational skills, if there's places on the internet where we can look for strategies and ways to be organized, I'm always looking for things that are play and fun based because brains always do better if it's fun or if it's exciting or interesting. And the definition of fun is always individualized, right? What I feel like would be fun may not be fun for you. Um, but if our brain is feeling energized and excited about it, it makes the task easier. Um, and I now have experts within my family. Like one of my kids is brilliant at organization and cleaning and, um, and it didn't come from me. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that they've developed those skills with because we had a curiosity about how to develop them and we looked for resources and sources outside of ourselves and they have now created and have a skill set that I still don't have um and so I think it, it it is that that idea of recognizing that you will never have all of the skills and abilities your kids need or want and creating that community or that that interest about being curious about where Different you can places. access and those skills. I have loved our conversation today answer. and I feel like we should probably wrap start. So I feel <laughs> like we've gone in a lot of to wrap things up before we go into like another whole hour of talk but I'm hoping that you can share <laughs> maybe some of your go-to resources be it websites or books or um, resources that you think would be helpful to people either in the adoption community or in the neurodiversity community if you have any thoughts on on things that you find helpful or maybe refer to your clients or things like that yeah so I have a couple um, the first one is um, in the adoption community, and these are Ontario resources, but they're on the web, so they're accessible to anybody. So the first one is the Adoption Council of Ontario, and I do need to you know, be honest here that I also do work with them, so there's a bias there, but I think it's a fair bias. I think they're a great organization and a good resource. 
tons of online information, webinars, education experiences, um, lots of free resources on understanding adoption, trauma, prenatal exposure, neurodiversity, tons and tons and tons. So that's at adoption.on.ca. Um, for parent support around adoption, Adopt for Life. So it's adopt the number four life.com, um, offering parent support um, and um, um, information, parent support groups, just really tons of great information around that support area around um, parenting kids who are on permanency journeys who are adopted. Um, Another shameless plug for an organization that's close to my heart is the Rural FASD Network. Um, once again, that's the, the network I was talking about that started from a group of parents around a kitchen table saying we need more and um, created this amazing resource that has an online presence as well as an in-person presence. Um, so a, a really, really great resource. Um, and I, I'll put a plug out there if people, you know, want to connect in with me, they have questions, they've heard something that I've spoken about on this podcast, they want more info about, they can find me at cpprofessionalservices.ca. So CP, the, the letter CP, professionalservices.ca. Um, and I'd be happy to, you know, um, expand on things or um, give some more info about things. There are tons and tons and tons of resources. Um, most of them will be listed on the um, adoption.on.ca. And they're not just adoption resources. So they're about you know, parenting kids who are neurodiverse around dealing with trauma, around um, talking to kids about difficult things, tons of resources on that, on that site. So I think I'll, I'll uh, rather than list off more, I'll just send people there and, uh, and also encourage people to connect in with me if they have specific needs, and I'll try hard to, to direct them to resources. That's perfect. That's great. It's good to have it all in one place too. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Karen, since we're wrapping up in the interest of this show not being four hours long, um, <laughs> we ask all of our guests, if you were going to dominate a category at a county fair, what would it be? And categories can be real or made up to ensure that you win. I was going to dominate a category. I think for me, and I don't know if this answers your question properly, but for me, it would be the person who got to sit on the merry-go-round the longest, and I would beat the merry-go-round riding, um, longest riding kind of, and I could sit on it for hours and hours and hours and not have to leave, and nobody would be on that merry-go-round longer than wow. me because I love the merry-go-round and I hate it when it slows down and you have to get off. That is impressive because I could last probably a few minutes and then start to feel nauseous. So I would not compete with you at all. <laughs> like you, you get that category for sure. All right. I win. I <laughs> yeah, win. that's right. Are you a ride person, Katie? I am just, I love, you know, uh, I'm compiling a list of ways to tell me you're neurodiverse without telling me. I love the tilt-a-whirl. And the girl child also, anything with that centrifugal force, we are here for it. <laughs> yeah. um, that pressure yeah. on your... Yeah. Weighted blankets, tilt-a-whirl, all of it. Love it. <laughs> anything upside down, uh, no. 
hard no on anything up in the air. <laughs> but if you want to leave me on the ground and spin me around in circles, absolutely. Cool. Um, although I can say that drinking a fair amount of beer and then getting on the Gravitron, bad well, idea. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it like forces the alcohol through your liver faster. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole different thing. Ever had. Bad bad choice so we will go ahead and move into our cussing and discussing segment and listeners know that they can either leave us their cussing discussing on our speak pipe or you can leave a voice memo or send us an email and we will read it out for you katie have you got something to cuss and discuss or cuss or discuss this week i do arlene and it's kind of a two-parter one i really hate when you're i don't want to say taken aback but kind of surprised and left wrong-footed by something and so you don't react as fast as you might want to and it leaves someone else with a negative opinion of you Mm -hmm. and the second part of the the same cussing and discussing is the tremendous lack of a commonly used singular gender neutral way to refer to other humans um my daughter was corrected by a server at a restaurant this weekend as to that person's preferred pronouns which is absolutely fine with me i appreciate that they did it i really appreciate the level of vulnerability that that put him in i feel very very bad that i did not react as quickly as I should have to thank him for correcting us because I was trying to think to myself if I had used any gendered pronouns at all because I try pretty hard not to in general because I think gendered pronouns are kind of bullshit and especially with folks where my first perception of who I might think they are may or may not match how they identify themselves and as I tell our children we believe what people tell us about who they are. And so whether it makes sense to us or not, if they like corn, they don't like corn, they identify <laughs> yeah. in a way we don't yeah, understand that's right. we believe them. or yeah. that we might not immediately jump to. I'm going to trust what you say about yourself. But the fact that there is not a good way to refer to people that is not gendered in a, in a singular way, I frequently use y'all to refer to a group but there's really not a good gender neutral singular pronoun yeah and there mm-hmm. should be not a pronoun a way to a way to refer to other humans right yeah to address that doesn't sound like hello fellow human <laughs> who is a human greetings. just humaning <laughs> yeah yes greetings human yeah. maybe i'll just go with that uh, anyway so if any of our listeners have suggestions i really would love to hear them um, Karen, what would you like to cuss and discuss today? Um, I think for me, it is building on what we talked about earlier and the, um, the difficulty of feeling shame when I or other parents are doing a damn good job and other people's reactions make me or them feel like we're not when they have no frigging idea what my life is like or what we just were going through 10 minutes ago or a year ago or how far we've come I I think that I think you know thinking about how we can manage that better maybe or 
how that can not matter so much or um, not have as much impact because it, I think it really affects a lot of us in, and uh, it shouldn't, it shouldn't take that power away from us. So I think that would be what I would say. Yeah. Agreed. I think for out of Arlene, what do you, yeah, I was going to say out of our conversation today, the one thing I'm thinking about is, I mean, in terms of systems, there's obviously lots to improve, but I think especially in rural places, one area that I know our family has struggled is in finding recreational opportunities Mm -hmm. that work for our neurodiverse kids. And I'm not blaming the people who run the programs because in, especially in rural places, it's mostly volunteers Mm -hmm. and it's hard to get volunteers at all. And, and so, I mean, people end up doing the things that their kids love or, you know, that, that they're running programs that, that work for, for them or that, you know, they're following a a structure that's been set out for them. And so that's, that's what's going to work. And there aren't the same options, you know, just based on geography and the number of people who live in the places we live. So some of the things that might work better for our kids in that get offered in urban areas don't end up where we are. And the things that that are here don't always fit. So then it means that that some of our kids miss out, which is really, really difficult. And sometimes those of us who see the need for programs don't have the capacity to start a thing or run a program. When, when you're in the, in the trenches and, and just trying to figure things out for your family to, to try and start something new might not be something that you can do right now. So, I mean, I guess maybe I look 10 years or maybe five years down the line and think that's maybe something I could do something about on a bigger scale. But right now it's just something I'm going to cuss about. (laughs) I don't know if you've had similar experiences, Karen, with, with that side of life. Absolutely. Or the, you know, and I get it, I understand it, but the idea that you know, child can participate if parent attends and that idea of, oh, yes, you know, okay, I didn't think we were signing up so that I could also do this, 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 or this. And, right, um, yeah. but, you know, making it work and, and, but sometimes just wishing that I also could have the hour to myself that the other parents are having and, uh, yeah, when my kids were younger, sometimes, or the school trips, right, where the school trips mm-hmm. were, yes, you can go, your kid can go as long as you go with them, or you send somebody, you know, it's hard, it can be hard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or you, yeah, you've got other kids who you're also trying to, to manage, yeah. so it's it's not always, not always possible. So we want to thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. You already gave us where people can find you, so we're good on that end. But thank you so much for being with us and for having this discussion with it. We both really appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. It was a lovely conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you for joining us on Barnyard Language. If you enjoy the show, we encourage you to support us by becoming a patron. Go to www.patreon.com backslash barnyardlanguage to make a small monthly donation to help cover the costs of making this show. Please rate and review the podcast and follow the show so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Barnyard Language, and on Twitter we are Barnyard Pod. If you want to connect with other farming families, you can join our private Barnyard Language Facebook group. 
We are always in search of guests for the podcast. If you or someone you know would like to chat with us, please get in touch. We are a proud member of the Positively Farming Media Podcast Network.